if you want to make your own podcast but feel intimidated by the tech barriers, then you might need Alitu. Alitu is a web app that lets you create and publish great sounding podcast episodes. It takes care of the complicated stuff, leaving you free to concentrate on what you do best, talking about your passion. Alitu, the podcast maker app, find it at alitu.com. That's A-L-I-T-U dot com. everybody. This is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. I'm your host, Josh Rapoon. This is another On the Road episode. And today we're with Dr. Helen Turner, who's the Vice President for Strategy and Innovation at Chaminade University in Honolulu, Hawaii. Welcome to the show, Dr. Turner. Thanks for inviting me, Josh. Should I call you Dr. Turner or for the bulk of this, may I call you Helen? I think we're friends. Let's go with Helen. All right, let's go with Helen. Okay. So the format that I came up with today um, I'm just going to call it 10 questions with Helen Turner. Um, and I came up with these 10 questions uh, while doing a bit of research into you and into your resume. And so we'll just roll through a, a set of questions and then we'll take a short break and then we'll come back and roll through the rest of them. Sure. Sounds interesting. Okay. All right. So question number one. So you are a professor of biology uh, with a lengthy resume of study and action in the fields of cell biology, immunology, and more. Mm -hmm. So the question is, what crazy, complex, even scary biology questions are keeping you awake at night? Well, that's a good question. Oh, my goodness. So... Uh I have had, you know, to reflect a little on the CRISPR-Cas, the gene editing that was done in China. Um, the fact that I think we may be naive if we think that that's not already happening in, in a lot of places. I read one report where uh, when they were looking at the guy's emails, who was the researcher in China, they found a whole bunch of approaches from uh, fertility clinics all over the world, actually. Right. So, you know, so it's out there, right? And, and you know, in a sense... Um, you know, no question that there should have been consequences for that researcher for what he did, but driving that kind of research underground, that actually scares me as much as the technology itself. So I'm, I'm a little worried about the uh, that kind of gene editing and, and where that's going to take us and what's going on out there, really probably without a lot of monitoring. For our listeners out there, especially educators who mm -hmm. might be in the STEM field, mm -hmm. what is CRISPR? I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of a, yeah. a podcast called uh, Radiolab, mm -hmm. yeah. and they've been doing a series of podcasts mm -hmm. about CRISPR, so I'm familiar yeah, with so, it. So this is a gene editing technology that, you know, on the upside has the potential to eradicate diseases um, and make the world a better place in many, many places. Is already powering an enormous amount of biomedical research that's being done in the lab, you know, in, in uh, cell lines, you know, in, in animal models. But it is a germline, which means it, it edits unto the generations. So if you do this to a human embryo, then the human embryo, the human embryo's children, their children's children, everyone is, is altered from that moment onwards. And we've never had that capacity at least not in the scientific sense. Um, and, and it really, you know, our generation is going to have to confront eugenics the same way that the generation around the Second World War had to con confront it, right? And so I don't know if we're prepped for that. 
I worry whether we're ready. <laughs> okay. So, so that's one thing that worries me. Um, looming antibiotic resistance. I get worried about that a lot. Yikes! I'm the, getting more you know, worried by yeah, the minute here. Yeah, you should be right. I mean, yeah. you know, what what are we going to do if we if we run out of ways to kill um, diseases? Uh, one in five deaths worldwide now is from sepsis, which is blood poisoning. I mean. That to me, that would be a statistic I would not have been surprised to see when I'm teaching my historical public health class about how bad it was back before we had antibiotics. That's a very worrying trend. And it either means that people aren't getting care or that the drugs are stopping working uh, when we deal with bacterial, fungal, viral infections, so on. So that's worrying me a little bit. Um, Obviously, I could go on, but I think one other thing that I've been thinking about a lot recently with uh, what's been happening in Australia is, um, and it's not something that's kind of within my field as, as a cell biologist, but it's bigger picture stuff around climate change. You know, the fact that we've talked for so many years about a hundred year horizon for climate change and how over the next century, you know, the temperatures are going to rise and we presented it in a way or it's been presented as this gradual far off thing. And the fact that it's here now and right in the faces of so many people on earth, I think we, we're sort of losing, we, we haven't quite grasped that somehow. And it's getting ever more difficult, obviously, to, to make the arguments um, given the political climate. But yeah, that sort of immediacy in the here and now of climate change is something that I've been thinking about a lot. Um, you know, I, it's, it's kind of a first world thing, but I read, read a, an article saying that um, ski resorts in Europe are, are closing all the time. You know, there's just no snow anymore. The ski season in Europe is 38 days shorter than it was when wow. I first went on my first school ski trip in 1983. And, you know, that is, that is an economic issue. Um, but it's also something that I'm just feeling that the people aren't trading with all this stuff that's happening here and now. And then when right. the fires in Australia started to happen, you know, what's happening with Everest bursting into bloom. I mean, these things are incredible and they're right mm. now. And so those are the things that keep me awake at night. Tell me a little bit more about this course that you mentioned, this historical, what was the name of the course? Oh, well, I teach at Chaminade. I teach uh, epidemiology, public health. Um, most recently, I started doing that actually in our data science program, which is about data analytics and how um, healthcare analytics can really, you know, hopefully, hope, hopefully help society. But uh, for a long time, I've taught public health. And I start that course historically going back to the earliest days of public health, theories of disease that people had in ancient times, theories of disease that sort of moved through the Enlightenment, you know, the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, and eventually um, into kind of the modern era. And one of the things that I do is uh, look at how, you know, what did people die of back in the day, right? And then what do they die of today? And then that prompts a whole discussion with students, which is really powerful, actually, about um, and, and what are we spending money on trying to cure? You know, because there's a, there's a, a dichotomy there, right? You know, we spend right. the most money on diseases that, um, you know, are diseases that are concerned to us here in the West, what most people on earth die of and not those diseases, you know. So we talk a lot about um, very early introduction to the students into how money, healthcare, science, how there's a, a link between those three things. Got it. Okay, so question number two. Okay. So you are the vice president for strategy and innovation at Chaminade University, mm -hmm. which is a private university here in Honolulu, mm -hmm. Hawaii. 
Um, in the past three years, you've established an in-house incubator mm -hmm. and think tank at Chaminade and an in-house innovation incubator for faculty, alumni, and community partner mm -hmm. projects. So the question is, what innovations are you seeing emerge from these incubators and think tanks so far? We're seeing some really uh, interesting uh, ideas and and actually projects that are, are close to fruition for for after the first sort of year or so of trying to do this. So, the background to this position is really, I mean, if I had to describe it, I'd say you know in a way I get to take credit for all the really cool stuff that a lot of people are already doing at Chaminade. But Chaminade is a small private institution. Um, it is up on the hill. It is. Uh, a you know beautiful quiet campus has not necessarily the place that you'd immediately look at and say well I wonder who's innovating around here, but you know we um, we have a mission of serving the underserved, and we have a lot of uh, need to be creative because our mission of serving people who can't necessarily afford a really uh, expensive private education means that we have to learn to run smart and run lean and all those kinds of things. So um, one of the first things I did when I was asked to uh, be in this position is take a look around, kind of do an audit, do a survey and, and look for what's going on on the campus. And I thought, you know, that I would find um, a baseline from which I could then grow innovation. And what I found is talent, creativity, ideas, innovations, um, a lot of really important energy but with you know faculty and staff who um, don't have a lot of bandwidth, might not have a lot of experience in going out there to get grant funding, say, to fund their ideas. And I thought, okay, here's something that we can we can work with. So um, we're basically doing two sort of main thrusts in the innovation uh, area. One is taking um, projects that the faculty and staff want to to get funded, want to advance. Um, some very interesting things that are going on there. We have a faculty, Dr. Jungwa Su. She's working on a kind of augmented reality syllabus. So this would interest, uh, I think, your... your uh, <laughs> I, I'm now yeah. super curious. Yeah, yes. so, so looking at the syllabus, she's an interior design faculty member, and she's just looking at the syllabus through the lens of graphics and color and engagement and inclusion and a syllabus that's so much more uh, than just a sort of a dry list of here's the learning outcomes and here's what you're going to be doing every week. And that also is very inclusive and, um, as we say a lot at Chaminade, students first, student-focused, because it, it really tells the student, respects the student's need to manage their time, budget their time, figure out where in the whole arc of the class they need to be putting the most energy. Um, and we, we're working to get something basically coded that could turn that into a platform, um, turn it into a way where uh, faculty could see each other's syllabi. And we could, you know, maybe not give the students quite such a hard week in week five when everybody uh, schedules their exams and things like that. Right. So I think that's a, an example wow. of just incredibly creative faculty, incredibly talented, and, and the incubator's really there just to help um, her move that project forward and, and hopefully get some support for it and develop a prototype. Another area that we're really um, interested in is a sort of social incubator function. So we put out uh, an invitation to the Chaminade community, which is, um, you know, our faculty, our staff, our alums, 
and our partners in the community and said, okay, one of the things that, that Hawaii has done really well is really start moving towards an innovation economy. There's a lot of business incubators out there, a lot of tech incubators. But what if what you want to do is primarily social? Uh, or what if what you want to do might not have an immediately obvious bottom line, but that we could, we could maybe develop into something. So a couple projects that we're really excited there, um, working with uh, a, a former student of Chaminade, an alum called John Iwohi. And John is one of our Ho'ulu Native Hawaiian STEM scholars. Uh, and he uh, was uh, a homeless person for many years of his life. And he came to Chaminade on a scholarship, got a degree in nursing, and is now doing a doctorate of nursing practice at University of Hawaii at Hilo in their wow. wonderful program over there. Wow. And he's working at Institute for Human Services here in Hawaii. And he came to see me and said, I got this idea, but we, I don't know how to move it forward. And his idea is how can we develop a tech platform that is a, a legal document repository for homeless persons, right, that works. You know, and of course, in this era of blockchain and biometrics, there are ways to kind of conceive that. And um, so again, you know, we're helping him develop a prototype. Um, but we also then have um, projects that are not going to turn into a, a product per se. Um, one of our faculty at Chaminade is extremely interested in higher education pathways for developmentally disabled persons. And we don't have that really here in Hawaii. And um, I think what will come out of her project that we're sort of incubating is um, it's a white paper or a policy document or a call to action. Mm -hmm. and, and so we're okay with that being the mm -hmm. type of product, right? Mm -hmm. And so, um, so this is a really interesting area for us and um, we're kind of doing it on fumes, you know, and seeing how we can deploy limited resources to really help some of these projects take off. But we have projects in data visualization. We've got two alums who want to change, who want to be the Uber of textbooks. They want to disrupt the textbook industry because they think it is unjust. Please right? do. Yes. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people are cheering on the other end. So, yeah, yeah, I'm um, cheering. We have a healthcare entrepreneur who wants to provide a caregiving curriculum for women who are in the home and are being care providers but have, you know, in aging society, don't have a lot of, um, you know, training in that or in support. And so that's a really interesting partnership. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I could go wow. on, but really, um, really exciting and such amazing energy and creativity in such a small school right so clearly you've got results coming already and that's yeah. that's that's really really remarkable yeah. we're starting to see um you know the one of the things we decided to do as a kind of uh, a sort of a operating principle is that we wanted to respect and understand that people have very limited bandwidth you know either as a faculty member but if you're an alum who's just starting their career out or maybe working two or three jobs as so many people do here in Hawaii um, if you are working you know uh, to as a staff member or so on and so a lot of incubators they have that you got one year you're in a cohort and you're done and um, you know TBD to see how this plays out, but we have basically said, you know, we understand it's going to take time. My team's role is to facilitate and start a document, start a PowerPoint, help get the meetings together and move these things forward. But it's really trying to respect the fact that all of these people have vocations and jobs that they're living out as well as trying to incubate this 
this mm-hmm. idea that they have. Um, so we'll see. You know, I'll come back in a couple mm-hmm. years and tell you whether we got anywhere with mm-hmm. it. Yeah. I think one of the things that you said was that the audit that you did, what mm-hmm. you uncovered, were mm-hmm. were inspirations and innovations mm-hmm. all across the campus. Yeah. And I think that that's that's very special when mm-hmm. you come at it that way. You're you're honoring what people are already doing in terms yeah. of creativity and imagination and mm-hmm. innovation. That's yeah. that's very very cool. And and you know a lot of these incubators. Mm-hmm. Um, we wanted not to be a shark tank, you know, because there's such wastage in that system where, you know, you have a limited number of slots and people, you know, uh, have to compete for them. But then what happens to the other guys, right? And, and right. especially, in, you know, again, thinking about people's bandwidth and, and the many, many commitments they have living in Hawaii. So I, I'm not sure how that's going to play out. We tried to cast a very wide net and maybe what we'll find is that we're a little naive about that but i don't mm. know i'm happy to be in that place right now and yeah. i'm just excited about the projects that's very cool mm-hmm. so listeners we're in the middle of 10 questions for helen turner and now we're going to turn to question number three so question number three is um your shamanad board of regents named an endowed fund the helen c turner or dr helen c turner endowed fund for excellence in the sciences so the question is what is excellence in science and why do we need it so i think that you know why why we need excellence in science is because it you know done right, science can move our world forward and it can advance social justice and it can enrich the human condition and it can save lives and all of that stuff. Right? And I think if you had asked young Helen that question, what what does excellence look like? I would have quoted a guy who I met once who worked at NIH, National Institutes of Health, called Henry Metzger. So, uh, very senior professor when I was a very junior professor. And uh, he said uh, in the front of an annual review of immunology, which is my field, he, he put this quote one year and he said, in science, the excellent is not just better than the ordinary, it's all that matters, right? And so, you know, if you'd asked young Helen, she would have said, well, it's, it's what grants you get, it's what papers you publish, it's what journals you publish in, what are their impact factors? And, you know, 10 years at Chaminade Helen, 20 years in Hawaii Helen, says that what is excellent science is science that represents diverse people's viewpoints, that makes sure that the science is done by and done for and done to people who are um, included in all of the, the decision making. And I think that sort of, you know, I came up in a time when the model for at least the kind of science that we do is, you know, one person in a lab coat, usually a male, runs a lab, tells you what to do, and you know, a lot of a uh, lot of egos in it, <laughs> and and I feel like a lot of wastage. I often tell my graduate students of a story when I first um, moved as a young postdoc to Harvard. I was in a building on. Uh, uh, right next to Fenway Park Baseball Stadium. And in that building, on the floor we were on, there were four people, four major, major Harvard investigators working, using taxpayers' money to work on the same enzyme. And the people in their labs were under instruction not to talk to the other labs. Wow. You know? Wow. And so, and, and coming from an English system where that would have been kind of antithetical, I was really shocked by that and always have, have remained shocked by that and, and, and interested in, you know, who gets to say what science is done and who gets to audit whether, you know, all those millions of dollars are spent, you know, mm. 
promoting the careers of these individuals and working on the same protein. I don't know. So I think when I look at what makes really excellent science that I see these days, I think it's incredibly inclusive. I think when you see the papers that come out that really knock you back and you say, wow, that is a huge advance, it's done by these huge teams of a lot of people around the table, a lot of people sharing the ideas. It's not that sort of very top-down kind of hierarchical thing. I think good science is reproducible, right? I think for many, many years of my career, it's been perfectly okay to publish something that maybe nobody else in the world ever reads or or deals with or or tries to reproduce. And now the funding agencies are really emphasizing uh, that that the work be reproducible and that its value can be judged not just by how much hype it generates, but whether anybody could actually validate that finding. (laughs) I think that's really key. Right, right. So I think those kinds of things, I mean, I I, I have a lot of other thoughts about, um, you know, for the young scientists that we're training, I mean, I think what makes them great scientists and what's going to make the science they do really strong is their connection to community and their connection to the, the societal problems that we're all meant to be mm. kind of okay. facing. Yeah. So so what I'm going to do is, that's a perfect segue, I'm going to reverse the order of questions four and okay. five because of what you just described about um, excellent science. So question number five, which becomes question number four, is mm-hmm. um, in the past four years, you've secured $15.6 million in STEM scholarship funding from Kamehameha Schools for Native Hawaiian students, something you called the Ho'o'ulu program. Mm -hmm. Um, So the question is, what excites you about this program and why are you leaning into it clearly so hard to go after that kind of funding? Yeah, well, I think it's all about who has a voice in what science gets done and how science is incredibly weak if the only voices in it are of, you know, one kind of dominant majority culture, right? So that's kind of where it came from. If you look at... um, you know, this whole move towards inclusiveness in science and diversity in science. There are a couple of of drivers for it. Um, From a more kind of cynical viewpoint, if you look at the the, the, sorry, the book Rising Above the Gathering Storm, which was a national um, congressional report that came out um, several years ago now. And that basically says, you know, you know, pretty cynically, you know, we need to include more minorities in science because there aren't enough people doing science and the competitiveness of the nation is going to suffer, right? Mm, And it makes the argument, you know, that if you don't have US nationals, you can't do science in the national defense because they can't be cleared. And, you know, so, okay, I'll take that, right? Um, But I think, you know, and, and for many years where you were sort of looking at trying to build programs that were inclusive in science and and promoted diversity the the challenges with that came from a primarily a kind of deficit narrative about minorities low-income people people whose initial privilege fairly pretty much excluded them from the science endeavor right um and it came really from that place of i, I guess we have to have some more diverse people in science right which is right. the whole sort of tone of that report um And then I think some smarter and better voices got involved in this debate and started looking at the idea of what weakens science is a lack of perspectives, right? Well, you know, if you look at um, the number of drugs that have been approved since the 70s where, you know, they actually just either don't work or don't work as well in African-Americans because they weren't tested, right? Mm. You know, these kinds of things. Um, 
Um, there's a there's a famous case right now, I think, of an Alzheimer's drug that just you know been prescribed to millions of people, but just out and out almost doesn't work in in certain ethnic groups. I mean, these types of things. It's it's really you know, well, who was the voice in that? Who was the voice that decided not to enroll uh, women into trials for heart disease? Things like these kinds of you know, historical almost injustices. And so I think that you know, if we you know look now the last few years and and what Kamehameha Schools was willing to recognize are really two things. One is that if Hawaiians are disenfranchised from the STEM endeavor, that's not good for Hawaii or for the the Lahui. It's not good in terms of well-paying jobs. It's not good in terms of guiding futures that are, you know, defined by, you know, science, technology, you know, business innovation, those kind of things. Um, But also that science is the poorer if it doesn't have people in it who come from the value systems that we sort of broadly espouse, I think, here in Hawaii, but but particularly in the native uh, Hawaiian mm-hmm. community, mm-hmm. and that, you know, the world has a lot to learn from indigenous peoples who are connected to the Aina, who um, have uh, a, the, the ethical framework, collaborative framework. I mean, all of this is really sending this idea that the central idea of Ho'ulu, which is maybe if we... Um, if we include and embrace culture as part of the training of making a scientist, maybe we actually build a better scientist. Wow. <laughs> um, and so, so that program, um, yeah, it's obviously very, very dear to my heart. It has amazing outcomes. I mean, we move the needle. A hundred percent of the students in that, uh, uh, program mm. to date have graduated. The retention rate in it is about 97%. The retention rate of our university, first to second years for Native Hawaiians across all disciplines is 90.6%, right? Wow. Um, uh, you know, it's just that and, and a lot of the other ways that we've modified the curriculum and the way that the pedagogy that we, they've really been, again, students first and really focused on this idea of um, valuing diverse perspectives in science. Because, you know, to some extent, a lot of science is technical, mathematical. Anyone can do that. You can probably get an AI to do it, right? <laughs> but right. it's the ethics and the value system and that that and the vision that you see of why you're doing the science. What is the, the problem in society that you're angry about that you want to fix? That's that's what makes great science, right? And mm-hmm. that's um, what we really encourage the students to see. So um, that program has an amazing kind of cultural framework it embraces Western and Hawaiian epistemologies. It's brave about confronting equivalences and false equivalences between those epistemologies. It, um, we always say that what we've tried to do is make the culture the cake, not the frosting, mm. <laughs> right? The, right. The, it's, it's easy to sprinkle in a few things, right? But this is really, this is deeper than that. And mm. I think that depth was really um, mm. uh, Kamehameha School's uh, saw it for what it could be, and they took a risk on us. That's fantastic. And I couldn't be more grateful for the support that they've given us and, and the lives that they've changed for these students. And many of them are actually staying here. Right. Interestingly, one of the things we wanted to do with the program was really honor affirmative decisions to stay home. Right. right. In the uh, situation, I talk to a lot of my students and a lot of them take heat when they decide to stay here in Hawaii for their, you know, undergraduate education. And we felt at Shamanad for a long time that, um, you know, an undergraduate education in Hawaii and then mainland for graduate school, but then maybe come back. I mean, you know, there are pathways that mm. could help sort of confront this sort of talent drain. And especially for the Ho'ulu scholars, being able to stay here 
and be honoured for that and then go and do internships and stuff on the mainland but be, be connected here, stay close to Hula, stay close to their community, stay close to church. I mean, all of these things, that's what the secret source of the student's success is, I think. Right. I'm not actually convinced it's... <laughs> <laughs> right, right. It, it's, it's, it's keeping yeah. them connected, right? So. Right. So we're going to switch a little bit here into, mm -hmm. into pedagogy and into mm -hmm. teaching. Um, and so uh, question number five, which was question number four, goes like this. So four years ago, you were a grant reviewer for a Library of Congress Teaching with Primary Sources mm -hmm. program. And so the question is, to the educator who might not be familiar with the concept, and I'm talking K-12 here as well as higher education, what does it mean to teach with primary sources and what are the benefits to students? Mm. That's that feels like ancient history. I'm surprised it was only four years ago. I think I think I did their grant reviews because um, to sort of pay back because they'd funded us to have a, a teacher education grant at Chaminade. And so Library of Congress has this uh, outreach program where we wrote a grant to get a, to offer a professional development for teachers in this idea of how do you teach with primary sources in STEM? And how do you specifically make those primary sources relevant to Hawaii? So, and the Pacific, right? And so, you know, teaching with primary sources is the Library of Congress wants to promote it because they're a damn big library yeah, and they've got a lot of sources the biggest, in them, right? right exactly. And so they want people to use that. So it's, it's about going there and finding the newspaper, finding the map, finding that first diary of someone who was on a voyage or something like that, but mm -hmm. really connect in the first person to, mm -hmm. to you know, a historical. Um, primarily it's been used, I think, in humanities. And this, so this was a little bit of the edge. How can you use this in science? And so we offered a teacher training workshop and we ended up having to kind of morph it a little bit because it turns out it's not a lot of Pacific primary sources, Hawaii or Pacific primary sources in the Library of Congress. We were able to help them see that that was maybe a little bit of a gap. Mm -hmm. um, most of what they had were things like um, diaries and uh, written by whalers, um, right. missionary uh, stuff. Um, it was it was pretty hard to find anything that was kind of authentically and indigenously um, a primary source. So, so that was eye-opening. It was kind of eye-opening, yeah, yeah. yeah. So what happened was this, the teachers, many of whom were from Hawaiian schools and charter schools here, they started bringing their own stuff in. And wow. they brought artifacts from their family and developed annotated resource um, sets and lesson plans around them. They bought, uh, we, we tapped into this wonderful resource at the University of Hawaii, which is the translations of the Hawaiian newspapers, right? And um, that's, a, uh, I think, uh, Puake and Nogelmeyer was up at UH at the time of the uh, Language Research Institute. Sorry, I can't remember the exact name, but yeah, this wonderful online resource they have. And so, so we were able to, um, I think, yeah, extend the definition of primary source in STEM and what the... Um, teachers I think pedagogically what they were doing with it was it was storytelling and it was connection with the students so the, the annotated resource sets and I think the lesson plans would be here's an artifact from me as your teacher and that immediately first of all sets up a really interesting conversation about this in you know, this 
fish hook or this, um, you know, uh, it, just so many different things that they brought in, pieces of jewelry. I mean, all kinds of wow, stuff. Wow, that's extraordinary. Photographs, that, you know. Right. But also it connects me to you as a student, as a, as a fellow traveler and as a human being and as I have a family too, right? And this is my story. And, of course, you know, we and people who listen to this podcast, they know that that's the connection that's important. And for students to be able to identify with the faculty or the teacher as a, as a human that they're connected with. I thought that was one of the, to me, one of the central messages of this whole primary source thing was that in the end, I don't think it's about logging onto a website and requesting a resource from a big library in Washington, D.C. or wherever it is. I think it's about what people have in their homes and their mm -hmm. hearts and their families. And um, it was very powerful. It was wow. a fun, fun program, actually. I worked I'm... a lot with uh, Manawai Peters and Violet Harada, um, Violet is a longtime librarian, and she was, uh, I think she was, uh, it was originally her idea to go after this grant. And yeah, it was a lot of fun. I'd like to do that again sometime. Coming, coming up on August 8th of this year, uh, my family, the Rapun family, is going to celebrate 100 years in Hawaii. And the mm -hmm. reason why we're able to decide on August 8th is because after a pretty exhaustive search, we finally found the ship's manifest that um, that uh, explained the mm -hmm. arrival date and all of the passengers on board mm -hmm. the ship. The family was escaping from the Russian Revolution. Mm -hmm. And so on August 8th, the ship had to record mm -hmm. its arrival in Honolulu Harbor, uh, yeah. 1920. And there were the names of my grandfather and grandmother and their mm -hmm. two sons. And, and it's just, um, it, I, I hear you when you talk about how students can make a contribution mm -hmm. to a greater whole when they bring um, the artifacts of their lives mm -hmm. to the teaching of, of primary sources. Right, right. Um, and that's, that sounds really special that yeah. people, that kids were able to do that. Yeah. And I think that importance of storytelling in any discipline, I mean, it, it, obviously many disciplines are way ahead of STEM in, in using that as a, as a technique. But the, I think the, the telling of stories and having students engage with their stories um, and engage on, you know, significant global and regional issues, but then that connectivity to how they have. I mean, we, you know, we, we see a lot of students who early on in a course, they might want, let's say it's a course in cancer biology. Now, one way to teach cancer biology is to start off with DNA mutation and work your way up, right? You know, and another way is, is to, is to talk through with the students so this affects everybody right and then the stories come and that's not easy for the faculty yeah that's a right you know and and you don't want to trigger people you don't want to go into these sort of dark places but um helping the students connect to why we do what we do as scientists i think is is hmm. when we've tried those kind of techniques and and, and approaches in the classroom the outcomes, I would say, have been resoundingly positive, mm. and students feel, yeah, that they're they're seen mm -hmm. and heard. I taught I taught history for 17 years at the high school level and and almost exclusively with primary sources from the very beginning. Um, one of my favorite books of all time, uh, David Horowitz's uh, book called Blue Latitudes, where he tackles the question of what actually happened at Kealakekua Bay when Captain Cook was uh -huh. died. Uh -huh. um, and so the central anthropological question um, is was he attacked or did he attack? Mm -hmm. And um, so what Horowitz does is he, using all of the available data and primary sources and a lot of science, travels the entire 
um, you know, length of Cook's journeys around the Pacific, all the while gathering the data that he needed to ultimately come to his own conclusion mm -hmm. about what actually happened. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's very inspiring as a teacher to think that my kids would be on a similar journey. They work their way through the sources and then they come to a conclusion. And of course, you know, there, there are variances to that. You can come to some very wrong conclusions, mm -hmm. but still the journey is the really important part when and, you do that. And in coming to that conclusion, if the conclusion is challenged, it means that they have to back it up. Right. Right. That's an evidence-based approach, right? And I think when, you know, we're so beset by pseudoscience and this, you know, there's no longer any such thing as a fact, apparently, you know, this kind of oh, stuff, boy. right? Yeah. That, you know, that generating young people who not only think critically about what they're being told, but have lived that experience of having to try and back something up with some evidence, you know, and not in a combative, not in a, you know, you know, you know, negative sort of way, but that sort of figuring out how to do that challenge um, is, is an important part of students owning their own inquiry. Right. Right. Yeah. right. And when we talk about resilience mm -hmm. and grit and determination, mm -hmm. we're talking about, reaching mm -hmm. those challenges or responding to those challenges. Yeah. That's yeah. an important part of, of growing as a person. Yeah. I'm glad that I've lived through the time educationally when we move away from this sort of, you know, oh, you know, let's not challenge the students too much kind of, you know, mentality to, no, let's respectfully, let's, let's go to the mat with them and see, you know, what their ideas are made of. So that, you know, that's, I think, I feel that that was something that really, was was almost directly or indirectly kept a lot of people down, right? right. You know, this idea of, of, you know, oh, you know, you're you're a student who is, you know, from a low income group, or whatever, we're just gonna, you know, just pat you on the head and thanks yeah. for coming to our program kind of stuff, you know. Right. Right. And and that, you know, really that move from especially in representation and inclusion in STEM, the move away from just checking the boxes and saying, okay, we have a certain number of this, this, and this type of student, to asking, are they actually successful? Yeah. That's what those kind of pedagogical approaches it gives you, moves, you know, access you can do just with money. Success, that that takes effort. Right, <laughs> right? exactly. And exactly. so, you know, it's been a huge part of our Hulu program, actually, also, is just not just focusing on access, but focusing on, well, what does it take to actually make this a fantastic launch of a life, right? Right, yeah. exactly. Okay, so question number six, and then after that we'll take a short okay. break, um, and then we'll come back. So question number six is, um, and we're going to return to this notion of data science. Um, in the past three years, uh, you led the academic uh, program development for Hawaii's first mm -hmm. uh, Bachelor of Science in Data Science. Um, recruiting an inaugural cohort of 16 students, of whom 13 are Native Hawaiian and 11 are women. So the question is, what is data science? And why is it important to recruit women and Native Hawaiians into this cohort? Well, this, so this is a program, again, very near and dear to my heart, very excited about it. And um, it was, you know, coming to fruition, that took a lot of support from National Science Foundation, again, from Kamehameha Schools, um, so what is, what is data science? I think data science is the process of turning data in which the world is currently drowning. We generate data all the time. We're generating boatload while we're just sitting here, right? Um, turning that data into actionable knowledge that can make the world a better place. I mean, if that's my personal definition yes. of data science. And that's what I've been trying to sell our students on, that data is power. 
Mm-hmm. And if you have data and you can use it to make um, evidence-based decisions that you can then communicate out to stakeholders, then this can improve the competitiveness of a business. It can improve resource allocation in healthcare. It can tell us what we're going to do when sea level rises. I mean, there are just so many applications Um if you're interested in sports, it can help you figure out, you know, sports analytics, which was your team doing this going to win. I mean, there yeah. are so many applications, right? And so, you know, our program is really um, the motivation for it really came out of um, what is the next frontier? We've been producing and, and supporting young scientists from Hawaii, um, again, predominantly, you know, students who don't come with a lot of initial privilege, at least. And, you know, we've been generating physicians and environmental scientists and biomedical researchers. And a few years ago, with some help from the National Science Foundation, I think we were able to see that the next kind of edge is data analysts and, and data managers. Um, what particularly appealed to me about doing data science in Hawaii, so um, and, and at Chaminade, so if you look at a lot of universities, um, the definition of data science as a discipline is what you do with your computer science department. <laughs> you yeah, know, right. it's, it's kind of you know, it's 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 very transactional. Um, a lot of data science programs have grown out of um, the statistics and and uh, uh, computing departments, and which is which is all good. 2017, a report came out from the National Academies of Sciences, and it basically asked, what does an undergraduate data science preparation look like? Which I then obviously downloaded and read this with interest, you know. Right. And it said such interesting things, Josh. It said that you need, you know, that the coding is a part of it, you know, and the math, of course, that's a key part of it, but it's not all of it, right? That that data science is... um, they, they sort of said that the purpose of these programs should be to produce, quote, data whisperers, right? Mm. People who have the capacity to take data and, again, make it into actionable insights for an organization. Um, and that what that requires is a more generalist way of looking at things, more holistic way of looking at it. You know, so, you know, data science has statisticians and coders. It has people whose specialization is in visualization and the the aesthetics of how you communicate data. It has uh, people in it who are more like journalists, you know, data comms people, marketing people. And so I liked that idea because I felt that it was, was a pretty broad church where a lot of people, a lot of students in Hawaii could find a place within it. Um, and so I think that whole kind of data science thing is a little bit of a, a, a misnomer in a way. It's a very, you know, broad program with a lot of different students, whether they're creatives, whether they're quants, whether they're artists, you know, they can find a place in this discipline. Then we took, you know, so we took that report and then we kind of shamanated it and and really added in a whole focus on data integrity, the value system that needs, you know, if data is power, then, of course, misuse of power is the, the you know, really very possible Cambridge Analytica uh, could yeah. go on, right? Right. And so the National Academies report and our, our sort of institutional setting really said, okay, we got to drive this in the direction of data ethics, integrity, and data management. Um, 
data sovereignty, you know, who owns data and why. And so, you know, our program um, is entirely project-based. Uh, so every course is a project. There's some fascinating courses in it. In addition to the hardcore coding skills and the visualization skills, they're doing community-engaged computing where they have to work with a nonprofit or a grassroots organization and help that organization move their mission through data. Um, there's a data journalism course. Um, I teach healthcare informatics. You know, so how how is data used to make healthcare decisions, both at the individual but at the population level? Um, so yeah, so it's it's mm. an amazing uh, program. the The need for having um, you know voices in that program from the Hawaiian community and and obviously a large uh, proportion of women in that program is quite unusual in computational disciplines. I mean, again, that's all about who has a voice in the decision-making, right? Right. You know, and, and I worry about, we've talked a lot um, about, you know, inequity in STEM and, and lack of representation. And I feel that um, without programs making really aggressive efforts to in, be inclusive in this area of data science, that's when you end up with, you know, 2% of computer scientists being female, you know, those kind of terrible, terrible numbers. And, and so I feel like we need to really mm. uh, move that. And um, what I'm seeing in, in the women in our program is a very strong commitment to uh, they're interested in healthcare problems. They're interested in, you know, we have a whole team of, of women in our data science program who are working on preterm birth, right? They're doing internships with Texas Advanced Computing Center, wow. um, which is in Austin. And they do the internship here because distance doesn't matter anymore with all the tech that you have. And they're working on national um, data sets that look at maternal mortality and preterm birth and trying to understand wow. why that doesn't hit everybody equally, right? So one... One of the team is working on that through the lens of the sort of clinical medical side of it. One of them's looking at, is it an access problem? Is it just that people don't have access to healthcare? One team's looking at associations with poverty. Mm. Um, and so, you know, so you can sort of see how these, these amazing sort of questions unfold. Right. Very exciting area. I recall just um, recently, it was a few months back, that Hawaii Business Magazine published an article by a young woman scientist um, in which she explained so clearly and in such an articulate way uh, the wisdom of the ancient Hawaiians yeah. and the ways that um, they were scientists and mm -hmm. in every sense of the word and, and talk about excellence in science and also about using data, which, mm -hmm. of course, you know, Malama Honua and the, mm -hmm. the worldwide voyage, it's, it's all just sort of one. Mm -hmm. And, and I was very inspired by that to mm -hmm. see a business magazine carrying an article like that. Oh, um, and I can see that you will be generating graduates who mm -hmm. think that they can be published and that their voices can be heard mm -hmm. to the general public about what's going on with their education and their hopes and dreams about right, what they right. do. And that it might be more important and more um, valuable to society. Some of them are going to go off and, and go up the academic ladder and do what I do and publish papers in journals that no one ever reads, right? right. But you know, one visualization that you do on Tableau and it goes viral, as long as it's accurate, that can be, you know, light, really world-changing, right? And so, so 
it's 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 kind of tough sometimes as faculty, I think, to understand that the world these students are going to go into is not going to be constrained by the same rules that we have been under as scientists all these years. Right. And and to your point about the you know indigenous persons and and you know uh, traditional culture and and how scientific that was. I mean, if you had to live in a resource constrained environment right many thousands of miles from anywhere and you had millennia to observe and connect and understand what was going on there may not have been the ability to explain at the molecular level sort of what was going on but how to manage that fist pond was arrived at through a process of evidence right. you know testing right. and conclusions that were then passed on and i mean that to me is a fairly good definition mm. of the scientific method right and so so what interests me a little bit right now is is this sort of now that we're rediscovering all of this traditional wisdom and claiming it, right? How do we um, how do we how do we do that? You know, what does that really mean uh, for science? I I do a fair amount of work in my lab in pharmacology, and some of it is um, looking at. Uh, compounds and potential drugs that were identified in traditional Chinese or Japanese medicine again millennia ago right. um, and and how can we maybe it's a smarter strategy to look in those settings for what was defined empirically and then you know work from that rather than you know try and do drug discovery which has led to a lot of uh, you know broken drug pipelines over the years so so I think you know we you know we are at this point where I mean, thank goodness we're starting to honor that kind of knowledge and we're starting to sort of rediscover and, and somewhere I get uncomfortable is this sort of validation of, of traditional knowledge. It's like, well, now that a Western scientist in a lab coat says it's good, oh, it's yeah, good, right? It must be good. I, I struggle yeah. with that a little bit and, mm -hmm. and not necessarily my kuleana to figure out the answer to that. But I think for our students who are trained, you know, rigorously in a kind of Western reductionist way of, of doing science in a more holistic kind of system science way, which is, I think, probably more connected to how science was uh, done in, through indigenous epistemologies. I mean, I think that's, they're going to have to walk in both those worlds, right? right. And that's something that um, was interested in talking with them about how they, they feel about those things and how right. they're going to navigate that. Right. right. So Helen, I'm gonna I'm gonna call an audible here, um, and that's something that's easy to do when you're doing a podcast. Um, so instead of making this one long episode, I'm actually gonna break this up into two parts. Um, so instead of taking a quick break and then we'll be back right away, mm -hmm. I'm gonna tell our listeners that we're gonna do this in two parts. There will be a part one and a part two. So I encourage you, wonderful listeners, to keep a lookout for part two of this, which will come out not too long after part one. Um, and in part two, we're gonna pick up a different, very, very different set of questions. And I'm, I'm excited to ask them. Um, so um, stay with us, stay tuned. Um, Helen, thank you for part one of this conversation and we'll be back soon. Okay, thank you. Thank you.